0: Jesus, the freedom giver. The Bible tells us as believers of Jesus, we are in a battle. It says our battle is not with flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces, which includes our own sin nature. Scripture also tells us that the war has already been won. As we walk through Zechariah 3, the prophet lays out a beautiful picture of who we are, who God is, and how he has set us free. We have been made righteous, and can live in freedom that Jesus provides. Bring your fear, guilt, and shame as we walk through Zechariah 3 and give it to the one who has declared you clean. Let's worship together.
1: My name is Bruce Washington. I've been an attendee of Waterbrook for a long time and served in our biblical counseling ministry, youth ministry, outreach. My desire is to serve God. And so Kevin and, and and Gabe, and John asked me to preach this Sunday, and when they first did it, I was like, are you kidding me? I'm not going to stand up here and preach, but um, I remember uh, a prayer I had with the Lord that if he puts a word on my heart and I'm allowed to speak, I'm going to do it. So I, I took my week yes, and that's why I'm standing up here today. <laughs> so we're going to, you know, we're going to go through Zechariah 3, but when I first started looking at this, I, I just looked at the whole book of Zechariah. And I just thought it was as fascinating how God talked to his people. I mean, the book of Zechariah, it takes place around 500 BC. And it was a time where King Darius was the king and he was allowing the people to go back to Jerusalem. And they were rebuilding the temple, they were rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And so when I was reading through this, there was, through the whole book, a couple of things jumped out at me that the overall arching picture that i see here is that god he won't forget his people he didn't forget his people they were in exile in chapter 1 uh, god he says to zechariah the lord was very angry with your fathers therefore say to them thus declares the lord of hosts return to me says the lord of hosts i will return to you says the lord of hosts and and he 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 says that over and over again in chapter 2, at the end of it, he says, And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And then he says, he says uh, And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. So over and over again, even through all of the, the chapters in there, God is promising that he is going to save his people, and he's telling them that he loves them. So I wanted to just walk through uh, chapter 3 of Zechariah, and my hope for you today is that, that you know how much Jesus loves you, and and, how much, uh, that I, and my hope is that we leave here loving him more than we do now, and my hope is that if you're struggling in guilt or shame, that you have a God that understands it, and he's provided a way to be free from it, because he, he wants us to live in freedom. That's what his scripture says, you know, we who, are, who believe in the Son, we're free indeed, and so We're going to walk through Zechariah chapter 3, and I pray that uh, the Lord works on us, and he reveals his beauty to us. So let's pray. Father, I want to give thanks to you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you, when you put this together over your thousands of years, Lord, you wove everything in here so beautifully, Lord. We thank you that before Jesus came, you pointed to A savior that would save us Lord and then when Jesus came you said there he is there he is and then as he ascended to the Father and sits on the right hand of the throne you continue to point to Jesus is our intercessor and I thank you Lord that you wove that through your word and I pray that you're glorified today I pray that you're magnified today and exalted in Jesus name Amen so in chapter 1 I you know I, I always put myself in these places so I'm just thinking chapter one, or verse one, I'm sorry, when it says, Then he shows me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And I'm just picturing that I'm sitting here in the front row of this thing where you have you have the Lord, the angel of the Lord, you have Zechariah the priest, and then you have Satan standing right there. I just imagine that picture if we were just we were in the front row of this And what I'm seeing here is he's in a sanctuary because part of that, what I was reading in some of the commentaries, they talked about the angel of the Lord is God and part of the reason they call him the angel of the Lord because we're in a temple and that's God's vocation. So he's there. And so just imagine you're sitting in uh, one of the Lord's temples and you see this. Um, And you're seeing seeing, uh, Joshua standing there. And in the role of a priest, Joshua is the one who has been chosen and called by God for ministry. So when you read about the role of the priests in, Bi- in the Bible, you read about um, the garments that they had and how intricately they were and how they were adorned with precious stones and, and all these things and colors that God had, uh, he had required. And they were made to bring glory and honor to God. And God said, this is what I want my priests to wear. So it was declared to the people that they were set apart by God for ministry, and then, as I said before, you you go into the, you see Satan standing there, and he's the fallen angel, the evil angel, and he's accusing Joshua. The Bible doesn't say really what he's accusing him. Well, actually, it it does kind of allude to that later on, so when we get through here, it kind of points to, uh, it doesn't say exactly what he's saying, but I can only imagine what he's saying, and I think the, that scripture kind of bears it out here. So in, in the world today, we, you know, you don't hear a lot about Satan. It's too modern, people think. You know, in psychological um, arenas, you don't hear about the devil. You don't hear about the accuser. You hear about, um, you know, I, I, I either need medication to deal with this. There's no, that a lot of times it's not dealing with, things that are going on, spiritual problems that are going on. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it's not necessary in some cases. I'm just saying that we tend to forget that Satan's a real being in this world who is attacking the believer. And so we tend to forget about that in, in sometimes when we go to approach it. so And I believe the number one tactic that Satan uses is to accuse us, just as he's doing here in Joshua. Uh, when you look at the definition of the word accusation, it's a situation by which Satan torments the conscience of the believer. And some people might say temptation is the most powerful tactic. And I, I don't, I, don't get me wrong, it is a powerful tactic that the enemy uses, but, and it's been used to, to befall many a believer. But just with meeting people, either as a counselor or dad, or a husband, or a friend, and in my own life, I believe temptation gets its power from unresolved guilt powered by the tactic of accusation. Lisa and I were, one example that we're talking about, Lisa and I were watching the Hillsong documentary um, recently. There was, I think it was the second part that came out just a month or two ago, and Hillsong... It was a follow-up of the documentary of Hillsong Church and its tragic fall. If you don't know, Hillsong was the church. It was worldwide. They had satellite offices everywhere. Huge uh, everywhere. In New York in particular, they started a Hillsong Church. And it was was ran by Pastor Carl Lentz. And they had 150,000 people attending 8 to 10 services every Sunday. And in this documentary, they caught up to... Carl Lentz. Um, and I was always wondering what happened with that whole thing. Well, he's in Florida now, and he's, he's working in a marketing department, or uh, an office. And so they caught up to him, and um, they started asking him what happened. And he, he was fallen pastor. He, he had had affairs, and he was found out, and he was fired. So something he said during that interview I thought was compelling. And that when he was asked about the affairs he was accused of, he admitted them, but then he said he confessed that what was happening was that when he was a child, he got abused and he didn't tell anybody and he lived in silence. And so he figured out how to hide the seat and he figured out he was ashamed and he couldn't say anything to anybody. So he actually said part of that was the reason why he was able to have these affairs because he could hide things very well because he's living in shame and guilt and fear. And that's where my, my prayer is for us as believers, that we don't live and hide in that. We, we bring it to the light. And we don't, uh, I, I think that's where that guilt comes from. He was feeling guilty and shameful for what happened to him. And it was something that happened to him, but he hid it and it built. And it, it just changes how we see the world. It, it does affect us. And so I, that was one thing that I saw out of there. And on a side note too, part, part of some of the sad things I heard of some of the stories of the people there were there were people who said, I don't believe in God anymore. And what I would, that's a warning to us as churchgoers is that when we go to church, we don't worship the church. We don't worship that the music's great. We worship the savior who's there. That's what we do. We don't worship the pastor who's preaching that message. We worship the savior that gave him the passage to preach. And so we have to remember that, that we need to worship Jesus and exalt him. We, we, we honor our pastors. We love them. We, we love our worship group, but we don't worship them, and so that's a warning to us about that. Um, unresolved guilt. Oh, so yeah, part of that was I was looking up guilt. It was I was looking it up on the internet. I just was curious on how many searches and hits you're going to get with that, and so I popped it in, I did a Google search, and it came back with like 76 million results. And so, and it was it, there's thousands and thousands of books, there's millions of articles on it. And what I found interesting was that I just searched on the word guilt, but the book titles that came back in the result were about tied with guilt and shame and fear and anxiety too. But they're all interwoven so I was like, wow, we need 76 million articles and books about guilt and shame. It's like, wow, we are a guilt-ridden society. We are. And unresolved guilt just doesn't affect a person for one day or for one week. It can affect you for your entire life. I mean, to the believer, guilt, shame, and fear is baggage that we carry for a long time. And, and unbeliever as well. And sometimes we hang on to the guilt of our sin we committed before we were saved. We hang on to the guilt of sin we commit even after we're saved. And I don't know about you, but I add to my baggage every day. There's not a day that I don't go without sinning against God. I don't know. It's the same for you, but for me, I'll say there's a day I don't go without sinning against God. So what do we do with that guilt? What do we do with that shame? So R.C. Sproul, he stated that, he knows, he said, now we know from psychology and psychiatry that guilt is one of the most powerfully paralyzing forces there is to the human spirit. Fear can also paralyze, but like someone could say, I'm frozen with fear. But guilt can cause a person to be locked in immobility. I would say, is that you? Are you so consumed by guilt or fear and shame that you tell yourself you can't possibly reach out to someone to share the good news that the gospel provides? Are you, are you just bound that you say, "I, who am I to say anything about anybody else? Have you been mistreated and just can't shake the feelings of shame? Are you so ashamed of who you are, do you walk around with fear that someone will find out, and when they find out, they'll reject you? And Satan uses this guilt to lock us, and he uses guilt and shame and fear to lock us into immobility. In so we do not live out the freedom that the gospel provides. So in, in verse 2, it's, <laughs> this is where we're starting to get some really good news here. So uh, verse 2 and 3 says, And Satan says, that, the Lord says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not the brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. There's a couple of points I want to make here. When we see Joshua with filthy clothes, it was an indication that there was some stain taken away from the purity of his ministry. The scripture says his garments were filthy, and which is more than a stain. I mean, they were, they were filthy from head to toe. And this is what Satan was accusing him of. And he was pointing to Joshua's garments and saying to God, look at this man. He's not qualified to serve you. He's not qualified even to be in your presence. Dirty people have no place in the presence of God. This is what Satan is telling, accusing him. And I can only imagine even the details of it. I was just, like I said, I kind of sit sit myself in there kind of listening. And so I could just imagine the devil, he's sitting there saying, hey, aren't these, he represents your people, God, right? Aren't these the same people that groaned when you sent Moses and set him free from slavery in Egypt? Aren't you the same people that wanted to go back to slavery after you showed your power by having them cross the Red Sea and destroy Pharaoh's army at the same time? Is this not the same people who groaned in the desert even though you went before them as a cloud in the desert by day to shield them and a fire by night to give them light and warmth? Aren't these the same people who complained about meat when you were already feeding them manna that you provided? Aren't these the same people who built a golden calf when you sent your servant Moses up to the mountain to receive your word? Aren't these people the same people that you gave kings to that did evil in the sight of the Lord over and over again for a thousand years? I could go on and on. I mean, he's laying out this huge list of accusations. And then the second part of that is, here's the thing, Joshua's clothes were truly dirty. Imagine Joshua looking down at his clothes and he knowing he's dirty. He's in the presence of the Lord. He's the representative. God has requirements for how he's supposed to present himself, and he's filthy. It's one of the saddest verses in the Bible that when I was reading through this, I thought, wow, what, what if that was me? And what I'd say is, it was me. And that's the same for us. In our fallen condition, we are truly dirty. Like like the people of Israel, we have sinned against God over and over. It's easy to be filled with guilt when we look at it that way. And isn't it how we see ourselves sometimes when we're being accused by the enemy or self-accusation? I know I do. When the pastors asked me to preach today even, My instant response in my heart was, no way. It wasn't because I was afraid to stand up in front of a a group. It was, I had all sorts of reasons. It's like, come on, Bruce, you haven't gone to seminary. Who do you think you are? You don't study the Bible the way you should. You're not qualified. All these things were coming up um, in my heart when they asked me. And so when, when Satan throws all these accusations at Joshua, the Lord tells Satan, which I love, he said, the Lord rebuked you. He said to shut up, shut your mouth. You're done talking. So then, then you read the rest of this. God's doing all the talking afterwards. There's nothing from the devil anymore. So and that's who our God is. We need to remember who Satan is. When you put your trust in Jesus, the devil's a dog on the leash. He's a, he's a lion in a cage. He'll bark, he'll growl, he'll try to intimidate you. But remember, he's only allowed to do what God has allowed him to do. Remember the account of the book of Job in uh, Job chapter 1, verse 6 through 10. I'll read that real quick here. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man who fears god and turns away from evil when satan answered the lord and said does job fear god for no reason have you not put a hedge of protection around him and his house and all that he has on every side have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions increased in in the side and in the land but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face and the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is your hand, is in your hand. Only against him do not only against him do not stretch out your hand. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So in that whole thing, we know that the narrative was that God controlled the narrative. The devil didn't. Even in this one, God's showing that he's on a leash. And so as a believer, remember that. Remember that the devil is on a leash. He's 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 going to be growling, he's going to be roaring, he's going to be seeking whom he can devour, but God is in control. Of him. Then after God tells him to shut up, he says, "Is this not the brand plucked from the fire?" That's what he's he's pointing. I can just see him pointing to Joshua going, "Is this not my brand I plucked from the fire?" And that picture of a brand plucked from the fire is a powerful picture. I mean, a brand is a, a burnt stick that may be in a flame, and you, and you pull it out just before it's completely consumed. It's covered with soot. It's just dirty. It looks like it's going to fall apart, and then when you start touching it, you know, what do you get on your hands? You get soot all over your hands, and then you touch something else. Or you touch your pants, and then get soot all over that, and it's a, that's how God is describing Joshua, and that's how God is describing you and me. He is that brand, that dirty stick that got plucked from the fire. God plucked us from the fire when he redeemed us. We didn't climb out of that ourselves. Romans eight five eight says, but God shows his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God got his hands dirty, too, when he plucked us from the fire, when he plucked it from the fire. That's why Jesus became dirty for us. That in him, he says, for 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel, that he plucked us from the fire. And then the news keeps getting better and better in this. Then you hear one of the sweetest verses in the Bible, and I, I just love this. And it, it says, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him, And and to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And if you don't take anything else away from this today, remember, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away. When you've put your trust in Jesus, your iniquity is gone forever. Forever. You're free. He no longer counted against you. You're free. You're holy in his sight. And then he works on that. That's what the doctrine of justification is all about. Uh, the definition that I, I got from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it defines justification as an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all of our sins and he accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of God imputed to us and received by faith alone. So in other words, justification is a legal act by God. It's a legal transaction. It's based on the imputation of righteousness from Christ by means of our faith. So when we put our trust in God in Christ alone to save us, we get Christ's righteousness accredited to our account, and God sees us and loves us as he loves Jesus. That's how he sees you when you put your trust in him. How he sees you right now. That's how he saw you yesterday. That's how he's going to see you ten years from now. He's going to see you as righteous always. It's it's that's the power of the justification. I think sometimes we mix up the doctrine of justification with sanctification. That comes afterwards. That's what he's doing with us now. He's making us more holy, but that doesn't save us. He's already saved us forever through justifying us through his son. So that's what we need to remember when we do that. So. Sometimes, you know, I think when we hear that we've been declared righteous, we see God as an earthly judge that just declared us not guilty. And then after he slams his gavel down on the on the he slams his gavel down on his desk he says, "Okay, Bruce you're free to go, you know. I don't want to see you in my courtroom again, you know. I don't want I don't want that happening." But we and so we act like he just lets us go, okay, and, and then we got to go out there and we go, okay, I got to make sure I don't, I don't screw up again. I got to make sure. I just got to keep this. He set me free. So I, I got to do it myself. But God doesn't just declare you righteous. He clothes you in Christ's righteousness. He doesn't just send you out of his courtroom. He says, I've adopted you as my child. He says, you're now, you're part of the family, and guess what? You're going to live with me, and I'm going to live in you. That's what he does. He's a good judge. He's not just like some earthly judge. He's an awesome, good judge who loves and cares for us. So when you've been justified by God, the accusations that Satan throws at us are baseless. They can't be no longer held against you because God, Jesus has them. They're all his. So he paid for all of them, past, present, and future. Satan's going to rattle your cage of guilt and shame because he's going to be there but remember what the Lord said. He said, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. At the end of Romans 8, Paul argues, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? And then at the beginning of Romans 8, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and in un- the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Praise God. The devil has no accusation to even accuse you of God didn't put an expiration date on your justification past present future I thought it was interesting too in verse 4 when Joshua got his clean vestments in verse 5 but they singled out him getting the turban so I was just curious on that and when I started looking into that further um, there was a commentator that brought me to Exodus chapter 28 and in that chapter it lays out the detail on some of the priest garments that's where that chapter is But in verse 36, it talks about, um, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like an engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. So there was a plate on that turban that Joshua put on that said, holy to the Lord. So when God gives us new vestments, new clothes, new righteousness, he says we're holy. And that's just, to me, it's just further uh, kindness that our God shows us. And not only are we justified and holy now, we can be assured that the Lord will preserve us until all things are finished. Verses 6 and 7 says, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts: If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. And what Scripture is saying is that Joshua and us, we should have a heart of attitude of love towards God and want to follow in his ways. And it doesn't mean we walk in a life of perfection. It just means we walk in a new direction. That's what he's calling us to do. He doesn't want, he's not, he knows we're not going to be living in a life of perfection because Jesus has already done that. But even better for us, when we look at these verses, we see that God did, he did send someone who did walk in his ways and did keep his charge perfectly. And that's Jesus. Even the name of Joshua means the Lord is salvation. In Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, there's a chapter named The Happiness of Christ. And in that chapter, he stated, uh, consider Hebrews chapter 12. There Jesus is called the founder and perfecter of our faith. For For who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the same, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he, he brought out for the joy. He said, What joy? What was waiting for Jesus on the other side of the cross? And he said, The joy of seeing his people forgiven. That's the joy of Jesus. That's the God we serve. Remember the whole point of Hebrews Jesus is the high priest to the end, to end all high priests, who has made a final atoning sacrifice to completely cover the sins of his people so that they are provided for to the uttermost. Yeah, we were, Me and Lisa were, we were here uh, a while back. We were talking with Kayla Anderson. It was right before she left to, to go to Honduras. And uh, we just said, how are you doing? And, and she, was, she's, she was telling us about her struggles. She was struggling with um, family and things going on, uh, work. And, and I remember just talking to her. And then suddenly she got this little smile on her face. And she said, but I have Jesus. And, and that's how our attitude should be, where we're struggling with our guilt, we're struggling with our shame, but we know we have someone who's familiar with that. We know someone who will take it away. We know someone who will someday completely take it away from us forever, where we don't have to deal with it anymore. But in the meantime, as we do that, we run to him unashamedly. Give him our guilt. Give him our shame. And I'll talk about some ways we practically we do that today. So then as we, like I said, as we've been justified, then God begins the work of sanctification. So in verses 8, 9, and 10, God continues to assure Joshua that he is the Lord and he will rescue his people. So in verse 8, he tells Joshua, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. And this is the promise of Jesus the Messiah. And you can see it through the Old Testament. There's several passages in Zechariah that talk about the branch. And then in the New Testament, one commentator talked about, in Matthew, he's the branch of David, the promised Davidic messianic king laid out in the genealogy records. In Mark, he's the Lord's servant. And in Luke, he's the man whose name is the branch. And in John, he's the branch of the Lord. So all this is tw- it's intertwining with the Lord is declaring who he's going to send. He's going to rescue us. In verse 9, he promises to set a stone before Joshua, and it will have God's inscription on it, and will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That stone is Jesus. He's the cornerstone. He's the rock of offense mentioned in the Gospels. When Jesus was lifted up on that cross and yelled it was finished, he removed the iniquity from all who trust him. In verse 10, the Lord promises that since sin is pardoned, free access to God's throne is granted, and the Deliverer has come and has been sealed by God the Father, the day is coming where we will sit under our own vine and fig tree and we'll be invited guests to the great feast of the Lord. Paradise lost will be paradise restored. It is a guarantee. So as you leave here today, just remember... That when you've put your trust in Jesus, you've made right. You're made right with God forever. You're free. That's what Gabe was saying. It's forever. You're free. You're free to lay down the burdens that you carry at the foot of the cross. And you might ask, how do I do that? Scripture's clear. I mean, Scripture really tells us what we need to do. Sometimes we have a problem with believing it. And I would say this too as a, a, a biblical counselor. You don't just give somebody scripture and go, oh, I'll take this and go, yeah, it'll help you. You walk through it with them. That's, that's what God, how God calls us to be. So it, scripture says we have verses that say if, we're, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he also tells us to confess our sins to one another. Confessing our sins to one another can remove that guilt and shame because now it's exposed I just think about that the uh, the account of the Samaritan woman when she boy she went from shame to freedom pretty quick. It was something where she's she's at the she's at the well. Jesus encounters her. He's like, "Hey, can you get me some water?" and she's like, "Yeah. I, uh, you want water for me? I'm a Samaritan." And he's like, "Woman, if you knew the water I could give you, you know, you'd be asking me." And then he then he talks to her a little bit and then he goes, "Where's your go get your husband?" She goes, um, and she goes, "Well, I don't have a husband." He goes, "Well, you're right. You had five husbands before, and the one man you're with now is not your husband." And she's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, How do you?" She's like, oh. And then she says, "Wow, you sound like a prophet." That was her response. It wasn't, "Oh, I'm shame." Now somebody knew, somebody knew about that shame and that she had, and it was exposed. And so then he started to talk to her, and he told her he was that man she was talking about the prophet. And then in verse 39, which always astounds me, she runs back to the village telling him everything. She's like, and, and scripture says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of that woman's testimony. And it says, he told me everything, all that I ever did. That's just, that's astounding. Somebody calls you out, tells you everything you ever did. And you're running with joy and telling everybody that. That's, that's how we deal with, that's how we're supposed to deal with our guilt and shame. And sin. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and just tell everybody about everything you ever did, I'm saying. But as you confide in people, you share those things and they can be exposed to the light and you can be free. That's, how God, that's what scripture calls us to do. So by God's grace, justification protects and defends the believer against any accusation of the enemy. When Satan attacks and accuses us, when he tries to knock us out of the foundation upon which we are firmly planted, when he tries to convince us that our sins are too great, or when he says, God has surely not said what you, that you're actually saved, let us remind ourselves with the authority of Scripture, God has declared me righteous. I have nothing to offer or to give God, for there is nothing righteous inherently within me, but God is the one who justifies. So who can condemn? When we are accused, when we are tempted to doubt, when accusations are brought against us from the great enemy of our souls, flee to the high tower of justification by faith alone and find your solace in the refuge of God. Amen. And there's an article written by Nate Pickowitz that say, it says, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul declares that it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast salvation is not our own doing why paul tells us so that no one may boast if we are all justified if we are justified by faith alone then there's nothing in which we can boast rather the proper apprehension of grace of in god of god is justification should cultivate nothing in us but humility when we properly grasp that god is done what god has done for us there's no room for pride in fact our response should be quite the opposite Knowing that God has removed our sins, placed our sins on his own son, imputed his son's righteousness to our accounts, and declared us righteous through the merit of his son, should humble our hearts like no other truth on this earth. So knowing these truths, let's live in the assurance that Jesus has, has for us. Since Jesus has us, we can live knowing our defense is Christ's righteousness. No accusation from the enemy lays against us. He ha- it has no merit. Jesus said it was finished. The debt has been paid, knowing that our defense is not our own. Then we can live in humility, because we can do nothing to earn God's acceptance of us. And I'll leave you with, um, uh, Paul Tripp has a book, New Morning Mercies. Uh, Lisa's going through the, uh, she does the devotional, and I, I, I listen to her. We talk in the mornings, and it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful book, and we, it just sparks conversation. He's, he's so good with words. So, so he says, if you obey God for a thousand years, you're no more accepted than when you first believed. Your acceptance is based on Christ's righteousness alone. So I just want to leave you with that. Knowing that Jesus did it all, we can live in overwhelming thanksgiving. Knowing that justification by faith is, a, is apart from works, that justification is a gift from God, and you are his beloved. So leave here knowing that God loves you He cares for you when you sin because you will run to him run to him unashamedly cry out to him and he says you're forgiven you're forgiven you're forgiven be free be free be free let me pray father i want to give thanks to you for your word i want to thank you for your kindness and your mercy on us lord i thank you lord that you're so good so merciful none of this you had to do but you did it anyways because you love your people. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that your desire is to rescue us. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who's maybe hearing this for the first time who doesn't know you, doesn't have a relationship with you, I cry out that they run to you, Lord. Run to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church Have a blessed week.